We're going to continue our, our series that we began last week on peace in an age of rage. We're, we're taking the uh, Christmas narratives, the birth of Jesus narratives, and, and uh, hitting on the theme that is pronounced in those narratives about how Jesus, when he comes, he brings peace on earth. And we're asking, what does that mean in an age of rage? Last week we looked quite graphically at uh, the rage and violence, confusion in our age. And there draw, drew out the point that one of the things we need to see from that is that our ultimate hope isn't in trying to refine the jungle that we're surrounded with, but our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ who will, as he came the first time, he'll come back a second time and take us home with him. Next week we're going to talk about rage uh, inside of our life individually. And what is Christ, what does it mean that Christ is the one who brings peace in terms of our own life? But this morning I want to hover a little longer over the social dimensions of this age of rage. I want to talk about a sensitive topic. Uh, it's, it's so sensitive that I'm a little nervous talking about it. And I don't get nervous easy, but this is such a tense topic that... Uh, it's expected that one will use very, very careful, calculated words, and I'm not good at using careful, calculated words. I want to talk about peace in an age of racial rage. And what does it mean to confess Christ as the Lord of peace in an age of racial rage? And because this is a sensitive topic, and, and it's the kind of thing where people are, right, there's a, there's a heightened sensitivity uh, between, between races. Um, and there's a, a real move to, to say that you have to use certain kinds of words and correct language and all of these sorts of things. And, and almost every day in the paper you read, it was in this morning's paper again, uh, people being aggravated because they feel that uh, the behavior or the speech of somebody or the, a play that was put on it offended them. And, and, and that's characterized, that's symptomatic of the problem that we're dealing with. And I, I want to at the start just ask for leniency because I'm not good at those kind of things. I, 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 I ask that you trust my heart, even if I use language that maybe isn't uh, correct. Uh, cut me some slack. I, I just feel the need to say that, because I'll probably need it. I want to read from Luke chapter 2. It's in your bulletins if you don't have your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 27 and going through verse 32. And this, interestingly enough, given this morning's baby dedication. This is the passage where uh, the parents of Jesus are bringing Jesus to be dedicated in the temple. It says this. Moved by the spirit, Simeon went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, that is to dedicate their child to the Lord, that was part of the law, what these parents did this morning was simply an application of that law. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. The Lord had promised Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had seen the, seen the Messiah. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. Which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then I want to turn, uh, if I could, to the book of Ephesians. And you don't have to turn there, but listen, listen to this passage very, very carefully. 
According to the ordinary Jewish understanding, Gentiles, which refers to all non-Jewish people, Gentiles were outside of the scope of God's salvation and, and for the most part outside the scope of God's love. And there was in the first century, as there had been for several centuries leading up to the time of Christ, a tremendous hostility developing between Jews and Gentiles. Paul now is writing to a, to a church which is primarily Gentile but also has Jewish believers in it. And in the context of this, he says the following, starting with verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away, you Gentiles who once were seen as being outside the scope of God's love, you have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself, Paul says, is our peace. Writing to Gentiles, he's a Jew. Jesus is our peace. Who has made the two, the two nations, Jews and Gentiles, he has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and requirements. And his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. One new man, one new humanity out of the two races. To create one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would really be with me as I speak this message that you've put on my heart, Lord. I, I, I feel it intensely, Lord. I, I feel, God, that this is more important than I or anyone here realizes, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would anoint it, Lord, that, that you would use this to instruct us, to challenge us, to guide us, to give us a vision for what you want Woodland Hills Church to be, as well as the Christian church at large. We ask this in your name. Amen. Taking down the walls, the walls of hostility. I want to share with you two things. The first is uh, my first encounter with racism. I was uh, newly married. I had been married for, for about two months, and, and uh, we moved a week after we were married uh, out to New Haven, Connecticut, where I was to be attending Yale Divinity School. And I used to walk my wife to work every morning. Um, we didn't have a car. We didn't have anything. So we would walk to work, and I would then, after walking her to work, I'd walk home. We'd walk downtown, and then I'd have to walk back. And one morning, I'd been at Yale for about two months now, and I was walking back from having dropped Shelly off at work, and a little African-American boy ran by me. And he looked kind of worried, he was looking over his shoulder, and about 20 seconds later, uh, a 20-year-old or so uh, white female came running up alongside of me. She was wearing a jogging outfit, but it was all twisted, and part of it was ripped. She, her face was red, and she was crying hysterically. And she said, did you see a little black boy go running by here? I said, yeah, just a couple seconds ago. She said, well, he jumped out of these bushes and sexually assaulted me while I was jogging and hit me on the face. And so I, I said, well, you, you stay here, or you, you run and go tell the police, and I'm going to go try to catch him. So I started chasing this kid. Yale Divinity School is surrounded, in fact, Yale University is surrounded, I didn't know this at the time, but it's, it's about half surrounded by uh, uh, some housing projects, uh, a, a ghetto area. And, and I didn't know this at the time, but there's a, a great deal, or at least there was a great deal of racial tension between the ghetto area and the school. Well, in chasing this uh, young man, he led me right into the heart of this ghetto area. It took me about 10 minutes to catch him, and I finally caught him there, 
wrestled with him a little bit. We fell on the ground, and, and I was trying to pin him, and I had my arm around his neck, and I had his arm like this. And I was holding him, waiting for the police to get there. We were wrestling on the ground, and at one point I looked up, and I was surrounded by 8, 10, maybe 12 African-American males who looked very, very angry. And one of them just said, I, I got up off the ground and kind of backed up holding this kid. And one of them said, let the brother go. He didn't say it that nice. <laughs> he was mad. And there was an intensity in their eyes towards me. And I tried to explain to them what had happened. But you see, this kid, he, he sexually assaulted a woman. And they moved closer towards me, and I was pretty much surrounded at this point. And, and, and the who appeared to be a leader picked up off the ground this broken bottle, glass broken bottle, and started shaking it. And, and walked more aggressively towards me and said, let him go. Which I did. <laughs> Didn't have to think very long about that one. I froze there for a second, and I was in, in a state of shock. For a second, I thought I might die. Or at least get beat up very badly. And there was a, a moment there where, you know, my adrenaline surged in my, you know, my being, and I either was going to run or I was going to fight. I chose to spare them and not use my kung fu. I know chop suey, watch out, you're huh, kung fu. And I ran, I ran fast. I just took off, and thankfully they let me pass through them because I was pretty much uh, surrounded. If they had wanted to, they could have trapped me there. About two minutes later, the police showed up, and I, being a man of great courage, started dry heaving. I, my nerves were so shot. I, I, I'd never been in that situation. But I learned something really important that, that, that day. I didn't know that this kind of hostility went on in, in, in our world. I heard about it, but it's one thing to hear about it, and it's another thing to experience it. I'd never experienced this before. I'd never experienced what it was like to, to have someone hate me because of my color. I'd never come that close to death before. I'd never understood racism before. I grew up in a very liberal family where my father was not only non-racist, he was anti-racist. And I always thought that was something in the deep south in the 60s. But here it was, I was coming in contact with it. I found myself, for, for a period of time, having a sort of guard towards African-American males when I'd be on the street. If there's a group of them, I found myself instinctively getting nervous. And I don't think that was sin, I think that was just a protective mechanism. But I began to see how easy it would be if, if, if this stereotype began to be reinforced, how easy it would be to make a jump to sort of a racial categorization, a racial conclusion. I didn't make that jump. My two, two of my best friends at, at, at Yale Divinity School were African-American males married to Caucasians' wives, and, and we did, my wife and I did most of our fun stuff with them, and, and we had no problems with that. So I never made it a racial thing, but I, I for the first time, understood how Stereotypes, when they get reinforced, can become racial categories, and you begin to see the world in those categories. But it also happens on the other side. There's a whole world that I don't know much about as a white person that uh, African Americans and other minorities go through. I'm learning about it. This experience caused me to ask the question, what could have gone on? What experiences caused these males to see me this white male wearing this Yale t-shirt that morning, of all things, to be an object of, of, of hatred, uh, to, to bypass any kind of justice that was going on, and, and, and their animosity burned towards me. What, what brought about that situation? Well, a lot of things do. A lot of things do. I want to read you a letter I got on Friday. 
from a friend of mine, a former student of mine. Uh, we, we're, 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 we're fairly good friends, and we debate over the mail sometimes about things. He is an uh, African-American man. And he's very conservative politically and very conservative socially. But he was explaining to me some of, trying to get me to understand some of the rage that was behind the Los Angeles riots. And he was telling me, he gave me an event, in fact, he gave me two events out of his own life in this letter. One of them I can't even read to you. The other one I'm going to read for you, just to try to get on the inside of where he was coming from. He was talking about why many African-American males especially have this paranoia about white policemen. He gives me this event. He was, he was uh, going, he was traveling around the suburbs of Chicago visiting a relative, but also doing some sightseeing for various reasons. And he says this. Um, anyway, as I was cruising around these towns in a nice clean Ford, I was pulled over by the police six or seven times. On none of these occasions was I driving too quickly, nor was my car in any way below standards. Yet I kept getting pulled over. This was early evening, around six or seven at night, and there was all kinds of cars on the road, but I was being pulled over. One pair of cops in Lake Forest pulled me over twice. The first time they asked me what I was doing around here, around there, and I told them. They told me they didn't want to see my kind around here. Five minutes after the 20 minutes stopped, I was pulled over again by two other police officers who went through the same routine. Ten minutes after that, I was pulled over by the first two again. They told me I didn't listen too good. They had apparently been on the radio with their buddies. And they knew I wasn't doing anything wrong. My car was registered to me, my license was in order, in order, and I had relatives in the area. But I was pulled over several more times, and every single time I saw a police car, I was pulled over. I could be heading one direction, they or another, but they still would turn around, follow me for a few blocks, and pull me over. Go figure, he says. That kind of experience creates suspicion. It creates maybe fear. Caution at the very least. And when that experience is reinforced over and over again, and he tells me it happens quite a bit. We, this is last week. I uh, heard about this on, on, on the news where these security guards were only checking uh, black uh, tenants in this, in this hotel for security and, and were letting the whites go by. But when that kind of thing happens, there is suspicion, paranoia, a wall of hostility that can develop. And one of the things we're seeing in our culture right now is a deepening of the rift between races. That's why there's such a tension here. There's an air of suspicion, an air of paranoia, stereotypes being reinforced, and it tends to escalate itself. As you hold a stereotype, you tend to act on it, which reinforces the other person's stereotype, and they act on it, which reinforces their stereotype, and there is an escalation of racial tension and racial rage that's going on in our culture. The Los Angeles riots we saw last week was one symptom of that. And we in St. Paul are experiencing the same thing. Last year was a real tense time with the murder of Sa Sergeant Hoff. Things are not all well and good in Minnesota. The Anti-Defamation League, which keeps statistics on this sort of thing, says that hate crimes, racially motivated hate crimes, have more than doubled in the last five years. And in the state of Minnesota, they've more than doubled in the last three years. The Anti-Defamation League, which also keeps record of this sort of thing, and this is what I find most scaring is that those who participate in explicitly racially motivated hate groups, the neo-Nazi skinhead groups, those participants are, the participation in, in, those, in those groups is, is skyrocketing, especially among the young. There's a deepening rift of hostility going on there. 
America, I really believe, is being fragmentized. It's turning into a sort of new tribalism where people's identity to their ethnic culture is much, much stronger than any kind of identity they have to the, to the larger culture, and it's fragmenting America. Hillary Clinton spoke about this several weeks ago, and she said, she, she talked about the dividing walls and the violence that's occurring, and she said, what we need, she hit the nail on the head. She said, what we need is, is a common culture and a common spiritual value system, and she's right. But where do we find that? How do we get that? The Bible has a lot to say about this, a tremendous amount to say about relationships between the races, but it all comes down to one thing, and that is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, Christ is our peace and has made the two, the races, one new man, taking down the walls of hostility. What does this mean and what implications does it have for the church? The first thing that we need to really resolve in our mind as a true thing is this. When God made man, he made man singular. He created one human being, Adam, and all of us, all of us are descendants from Adam. In fact, in the Bible, mark my words on this, the Bible does not discuss different people's in racial categories. The Bible doesn't have the category of race. It has the categories of nations and it has a category of cultures and God's okay with that, but the Bible doesn't divide people according to race. God created one humanity. In God's eyes, the way God sees things, he doesn't speak about or even categorize things in terms of races. There's one race and that's the human race. There's one blood. All human beings belong to the same race. We share one God, we have one common blood, and all that makes human beings distinctly human is shared by all of us. We're all made, Genesis chapter 1 tells us, we're all made in the image of God. But God, being a master artist, creates us very creatively. I don't know any artist worth, worth his salt, is worth his weight in salt, whatever the expression is, who paints with just one color. What a boring picture, one color. God is a great artist, and when he creates, he creates with incredible creativity, incredible diversity. He doesn't want a boring world. The world would be boring if there was all white people. The last thing you can ever say about God is that he's boring. So God creates with a wonderful diversity. He likes a lot of different colors and a lot of different body shapes, a lot of different hair colors, and, and he gives us all unique personalities and different ways of thinking and different ways of talking. He's a God of wonderful creativity, and the diversity is good. I wonder if we can see that. The diversity is good. That's part of God's created order. The categorization, and I want to say this as straight as I can, the categorization of people in terms of their race is a result of the fall. Racism is sin, pure and simple. Racism is sin. It's a part of the fall. It's really one category of the human sin of pride, where people lacking life from God because our relationship with God gets cut off we, we try to seize on other things as a source of life to us. And we try to make that a, an area that we're proud of. And, and what happens is we say, you know, since I, I, you know, I need to feel special, I need to feel important, well, I'm white, and therefore being white is, is where it's at. Being white is, is, is the best. And if you don't look like me, and if you don't talk like me, and if you don't think like me, and if your culture's different than my culture, and you don't like the kind of music I, I like, and you don't have the exact same value system that I have, then there's something wrong with you. There's something inferior about you. You don't have the same status and dignity that I have. And racism turns the beauty of God's diversity 
into a disgraceful competition. It turns the beauty of God's diversity into a sham. It turns the beauty of God's diversity into something destructive. And that's the result of sin. The whole division of races is a part of the curse. The Bible tells us about the Tower of Babel. Have you read that story? How humanity, even after the fall, was in some sense united. This is found in Genesis 10. We were in some sense united, but we began to use that unity as a way of getting as a way of rebelling against God, we try to uh, use that unity to build this wonderful tower as a monument to our own autonomy from God. And so the Lord there came down, and the Bible says he gave us different languages and scattered us, uh, scattered us over all the faces of the earth. It was part of the curse. And that's when, you know, we, we started tropical adaptation and, and selective breeding, so the gene pool of, uh, of the human race become, became more selectively identified at different geographical locations, and that's where the idea of races came from. And since, the, since that point, the races have been warring against each other, fighting against each other, being in tension with, with each other because of the sin of human pride. What we need to see so clearly is that God, from the beginning, has hated that. God, from the beginning, and the Bible talks a lot about this sort of thing, his, God's goal was always universal. When God promised Eve the Messiah, it was to all of humanity. And when God told Abraham that through him uh, uh, the world would be blessed, the Lord said, all the nations of the world shall be blessed through you. And throughout the Old Testament, God always had his eyes on the world as a whole. He wanted to use Israel as a way of ministering to the whole world. Israel often misunderstood that, and they thought it was a kind of, they, they used it against God in a way, and, and they became in their own way ethnically centered and thought that they were somehow unique and special in God's eyes. And they were in a sense, but only because of what God could do through them to the world. God has always loved the world. And you find that throughout the Old Testament, God looking forward to the time when he's going to bring the nations together. Isaiah calls it the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. And the place where the healing is going to occur is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Simeon, when he picks up the baby Jesus, as he's being dedicated to the Lord, he prays the prayer, Lord... Now I'm ready to die because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared before the sight of all people. Simeon, a Jew, would have been taught that the Gentiles are not part of God's plan, they're not part of God's revelation, but Simeon saw here that what God was about in the person of Jesus Christ was far bigger than any kind of ethnic identity, cultural identity, racial identity. This is also why the birth of Jesus itself has an international flavor. It's interesting, we're only told of two groups of people that visited the baby Jesus. One was this group of shepherds. We don't know if they were Jewish or not, they probably were. The other group are these magi. The magi, I couldn't even pronounce it last week, so this week I did some research on it, and it's really interesting. The word magi comes from Persia. And these were Persian scribes. Persian scribes who usually were dabbling in astrology. But they also studied prophecy in all sorts of ancient books. And somehow God had revealed to them about the child being born and how there'd be a star in the east and they were to follow the star. These were people of dark skin coming to visit the baby Jesus. What's really interesting is that they are descendants of ancient Babylon. And Babylon was an arch enemy of Israel. They had taken Israel captive and had slayed a great portion of the Israelites, murdered them and made slaves out of them. But in Jesus Christ, with the visit of the Magi, they come and they bow down before the baby Jesus. We already see Jesus in the process of making the two one and taking down the walls of hostility, making friends of enemies. And you see that throughout the birth of, uh, throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ as well. Jesus always had this international flavor to him. 
Not because it was the politically correct thing to do, but because it was in his heart to do, because it was in God's heart to do it. He didn't just go to the people of Israel. He went to people that you weren't supposed to go to if you were a good Jewish person. The, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. But Jesus ministers to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. The only group of people that the Jews hated more than the Samaritans were the Romans. The Romans were oppressing the Jews. They didn't, the, the, the Jews lost the sovereignty of their country to the Romans. And the Romans often treated them very, very poorly. And if you're going to hate anybody among the Romans, you're going to hate the army of the Romans. And if you're going to hate the army of the Romans, the ones you hate the worst are the generals of the army. The Bible tells us this gospel story of this Roman general, a centurion, who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, my daughter is dying. And I am not worthy to receive you into my house. But if you just say the word, I know my daughter can be healed. And Jesus looks up to this officer of the army that is oppressing his own people and treating them unjustly. And Jesus, he doesn't see the world, he doesn't break down the world in terms of the kind of social categories, the cultural categories and the racial categories that our culture breaks down the world in. Jesus sees the world in terms of needs. And this man had a daughter who was dying and he saw her need and he said, not only will I say the word, I want to go to your house. And then he proclaims to the people around him, the Jews around him, never have I seen such, great, uh, such, such faith in all of Israel. Jesus sees the world in terms of need, not in terms of racial categories. His birth has an international feel to it. His life has an international feel to it. And his death has an international feel to it. The Bible says that when Jesus died, he didn't just die. He didn't just die for the Jews. He didn't just die for religious people. He didn't just die for people of one culture but not another culture. He didn't just die for white people. And he didn't just die for Christians. The Bible says that God so loved the world. Who did God love? He loved the world. Amen? God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. The door's wide open. Anyone who wants. It doesn't matter what culture you're in, what color you are, whether you're fat, whether you're skinny, whether you're tall, whether you're short. Doesn't matter what part of the globe you're in, whoever wants it can get it, and I died so that you might have it. God's got a heart and a burden and a vision for the world, and it's always been that way, but it's actualized in the person of Jesus Christ. His blood is shed, not just for us, but for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2 tells us. That's why the Bible, when it gives us a vision of heaven, you know what it has? In the book, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, it says we're all, we're all going to be sitting around the throne. The Bible says, and there will be people, as the Lamb of God is enthroned on high, there will be people there from every tribe and from every nation, and they're going to be singing the same song with one voice, with one heart, with one mind, with one disposition of adoration. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for our sin. We all were sinners, but now we are all saved eternally. And having that in common dwarfs in significance all the differences that might be there. People from every tribe and every nation. There'll be people from Ghana, like Robert, right next to Americans like me, singing, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. Can we picture it? British people next to Zulu Afrikaners singing, worthy is the lamb. Eskimos next to Amazon Indians singing, worthy is the lamb. Native Americans next to Asians singing, worthy is the lamb. Gathered from every corner of the globe, the Bible says. And the humanity that God intended to be one will be one in Jesus Christ. Not losing the diversity because the diversity is beautiful. A multicolored picture, picture is an exciting picture, but will be one. But God doesn't want just to wait to heaven to do that. 
And that's what I want, want us to see this morning. God intends that future reality to begin to be a reality in the church. God wants the church to be a testimony, a witness. Paul says that we are ambassadors. We're representatives of the kingdom of God. And we are to be to the jungle around us that can't find a way of harmonizing racial relationships. We are to be a witness of how that can be done. It can be done in Jesus Christ. And, John, and Jesus prays in John chapter 17 that our unity, our oneness will be one major way that the world will see that the Father has sent him, that he is true by our love for one another, by our unity with one another. Jesus sends forth to the church now and today the presence of the Holy Spirit to begin to bring about that unity. We see it in the book of Acts in a powerful, powerful way. Jesus says to his disciples, you wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And what would that power be for? He says in, in Acts 1.8, this power shall make you witnesses to me in Jerusalem. You shall be witnesses to me in Samaria. You're going to be witnesses to me in Judea. And you're going to be witnesses to me throughout the entire world. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, go forth and baptize, teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, all the peoples. This, the Lord is saying, when the Spirit comes upon you, it's going to have the same kind of international focus. The church is going to have the same kind of international love and vision that I myself have because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. And that's why. That's why in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, they begin to speak in other tongues. And all the people around them, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it says people from every nation were gathered there, and they all began to hear the disciples praising God in their own language. What was going on there? I'll tell you what was going on there. The Lord was showing in a real powerful way how when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, the division that started at the Tower of Babel, the inability to communicate with one another that started at the Tower of Babel, the hostility between people of different color that began at the Tower of Babel, the confusion of tongues that began at the Tower of Babel, when the Spirit of God comes upon people, it begins to be reversed. And the church, which is to be the community of the Holy Spirit, is a place where that reversal is taking place. Where the Spirit of God is, and what's so crucial that we see, where the Spirit of God is, Differences of color become utterly inconsequential. Amen? Where the Spirit of God is, differences of culture become inconsequential. Where the Spirit of God is, differences of music preference and differences of cultural preferences and differences in the way you want to dress and the way you want to look become utterly insignificant because you've got the Spirit and the power and the love and the, mi the mission of Jesus in common. Having that in common, what could possibly divide you? What you, this is what Hillary Clinton's looking for. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's to be manifested in the church. And that's why Peter, Peter stands up on the, on the day of Pentecost and he starts preaching to the people around him. And they're saying, what's going on here? What is this all about? And Peter says, well, okay, you guys, listen to this. This is what was prophesied back 800 years ago in the prophet Joel, where the Lord said, no one understood it at the time, but the Lord said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. I'm going to pour out the Spirit on your sons and I'm going to pour out the Spirit on your daughters. Gender differences become inconsequential. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on the young and I'm going to pour out my Spirit on the old. Generational differences become inconsequential. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on the rich and I'm going to pour it out on the poor. I'm going to pour out my Spirit on the bond people, those who are in slavery, and I'm going to pour it on those who are free. Social distinctions, social hierarchies become inconsequential. 
And I'm going to pour out my spirit on the Jew, and I'm going to pour out my spirit on the Gentile, Peter says. Racial distinction becomes inconsequential. Because when the spirit of God comes upon a people, we understand that we've got one humanity. We are one race. We understand that we've got one Lord. We understand that we've got one God. We understand that we are all equally sinners, and that levels us. We understand that we've got one calling and one mission and one vision for the world. And having that in common dwarfs just dwarfs, invalidates all the kind of social games and social power plays that characterize our culture. In the church of Jesus Christ, when the Spirit of God is there, this isn't about some kind of political hobby horse out of political correctness. That doesn't bring about peace. It puts people on edge with one another where you're always worried about are you going to say the right thing and do this and that and, and who can be the most sensitive and who can be the most easily offended. That doesn't bring about peace. It brings about a, a, a sort of semblance of tolerance. But if anything, it tends to aggravate the, the, the racial tension. I'm talking about peace, and the peace is Jesus Christ. In Christ, there's genuine peace. When I'm around my friend Robert Ba here, I don't have to worry about the details of what I'm going to say or do or whatever. We're friends. We love one another. We're, we're brothers in Christ. And there's a commonality there that just renders utterly inconsequential, silly, all the kind of social distinctions that characterize our culture. And Jesus said that this oneness in John 17, this oneness is going to be a testimony to the world, proving to the world that Jesus Christ is real. Father, he says in John 17, 20, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one, that the world may see that you have sent me. I want you to know here this morning, whether you're white or whether you're black is of utterly no consequence. In Christ we are one. And whether you're here and you're very, very rich, or whether you're here and you're very, very poor, it makes utter, absolutely no difference. That way of thinking has been invalidated by the Holy Spirit. And if you're here, whether you're male or whether you're female, is of no consequence. That way of breaking down things and making a little hierarchy has been invalidated. And whether you're here from Ghana or whether you're here from South Africa or whether you're here from Russia or whether you're here from the Antarctica, it doesn't make a bit of difference. That way of breaking down things has become invalidated because the Spirit of Christ is here, and when we have that in common, all the differences just don't matter. It just doesn't matter. It can be seen and said out loud to be the silly thing that it is. That's not always easy to do. The New Testament had a lot of problems with it. Had a lot of problems with it. Peter, the very one who preached this great sermon on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 10, God's got to knock him over the head three different times with a vision to get him to go and preach to the Gentiles. He earlier prophesied, would receive the gospel. He doesn't get it. And even when he goes, read Acts chapter 10, even when he goes to the Gentiles, he's got a, the Gentiles have to remind him why he's there. <laughs> read it, it's just crazy. This guy was a first century Jew who had all the, the prejudice apparatuses that you'd expect of a first century Jew. The Lord has to confront it. Later on, Paul has to confront him again in Galatians because of his racism. It's not easy to do always, but it's got to be done. It's got to be done. This is what our calling is all about. In Christ, what does peace mean in an age of racial rage? It means that Jesus Christ, the baby, Jesus, the baby child Jesus Christ, and the work that he did, unites us. Gives us a commonality that renders insignificant all the things that would otherwise divide us. And we need to focus on that and begin to bring that about as a reality. I've got a vision for Woodland Hills where that's part of the reality. I really do, and I pray for that, and I'd encourage you to pray for that that the artistry of God's diversity would be more manifested even right here.